Let's uh, continue in worship by taking our Bibles and turning to John chapter 18. Our series right now is entitled The Road to Resurrection. And today we're going to look at John 18 verses 28 through 40. That's our passage for today. And while you're doing that, while you're turning to that passage, let me start with this. Back in 1925, the New York Times declared that crossword puzzles weren't going to catch on in America (laughs) and that people would eventually get bored doing them every day. Today, the New York Times is regarded as the gold standard for crossword puzzles and publishes a new one every day. In 1974, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission ordered that lapel buttons be printed to promote toy safety. However, those buttons were recalled for safety concerns. The buttons contained lead paint. That's not safe. And they were a choking hazard for small children. In 1914, the British author H.G. Wells called World War I the war that would end all wars. It was called at that time the Great War. People couldn't imagine a war on a greater scale than that. Little did they know at the time that World War I would plant the seeds for the more seismic and even more devastating war just a few years later called World War II. On January 1st, 1962, four men named John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Ever heard of those guys? They auditioned at Decca Records, performing 15 songs in just under an hour. A famous producer at that time was there named Mike Smith, and he said they were nothing special. And he flat out refused to sign them. It was thought at the time that groups with guitars were on the way out. That group was signed at the next audition they played and went on to become the Beatles. Ever heard of them? Now, each of those little historical anecdotes is an instant, an instance of what I like to call irony or what you would call irony. Irony, if you don't know, is a literary device where a certain situation ends up differently than you would expect. In simple words, It's a difference between appearance and reality. In each of those instances I gave you, the situation was quite different than the way that they were described. An unsafe button that promotes toy safety? That's ironic. The Beatles called not special? World War II, the end, the war that would end all wars? Uh, No, actually it would set the pace for an even worse war that H.G. Wells could never have expected. So his statement is ironic. Now, here's why I mention this. Here's why I start this way. If you do any research on the Gospel of John, the book that we're studying right now, or if you study any commentaries on this book, you will inevitably run across what's called Johannine irony. And that's because John, the author of this book, more than the other Gospel writers, loves to point out the historical ironies in the life of Jesus. We saw some of that last week. Jesus speaks truth before Jewish leaders, and he gets beaten for it. Peter speaks lies and gets away with it. Jesus is brave and self-confident before the most powerful men in Jerusalem. Peter is cowardly and self-conscious before a little servant girl. 
We even saw an example of irony with Caiaphas, the high priest. He said about Jesus, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. I mean, his idea was like, let's just kill Jesus and protect ourselves from some revolt. Jesus, but Jesus did die for the people, but not in the way that Caiaphas thought that he would. And John loves to point out the irony of this truthful statement spoken by ignorance, spoken by a wicked man. That's irony. Well, there's more irony at work in today's passage in John 18, 28 through 40. But I'll, ju- I'll just tell you right now, it's not a lighthearted irony. It's not a funny irony. It's a sad irony. It's a cruel irony. The most innocent man in the history of the world, a man who was sinless his entire life, is interrogated and condemned by wicked men. In fact, it's worse than that. The creator of mankind, the creator of men, is going to put his life in the hands of his own creation, and they're going to put him to death. It's cruel. It's ironic. It's sad, but let's not forget, and this is part of John's message to us throughout this passage, it's all part of God's plan of redemption, and it's how we get saved, folks. Without this, there is no salvation. You die in your sins. So we need to know what happens in John 18, John 19, all the way to John 21, and this is important for us. Let's pick up here. Last week, when we were looking at the life of Jesus and the trial just before Good Friday, we saw that he was brought before this man named Annas, who at one time served as the high priest over Israel. And John tells us that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. But the high priesthood in Israel at this time was, was run kind of like the mafia. And Annas, he's like, the mafia dawn, so to speak, of this group. He's the godfather. And so their intention at first is to bring him before Annas and determine, you know, maybe they can get Jesus to self-incriminate. Maybe they can get him to say something, coerce him into some, something that they can use against him. Well, that doesn't work out very well. So in verse 24, John tells us that Annas sent Jesus to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Now, John doesn't tell us what happens next, doesn't tell us what happens in that trial before Caiaphas, but we know what happens. If you read the other Gospels, you can read all about this. Just to cut to the chase, it was, it was more the same, really, as he stood before Caiaphas and these other people that were uh, persecuting Jesus. More interrogations, more beatings, more humiliation of Jesus before Caiaphas. John skips that whole part, and in verse 28, he fast-forwards, to Jesus' trial before Pilate. Look at verse 28 with me, and let's, let's pick up here. Let's observe this together. John writes, Then they, that's the Jewish leaders, presumably including Caiaphas now, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, to Pilate's headquarters. And it was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Are y'all feeling the irony in this passage yet? Let me just say that again. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Let me just state it clearly for you. This is number one in your notes. You can go ahead and write this down. 
The Jewish leaders here stressed ritual cleanness while conspiring to execute an innocent man. In their mind, that was okay. These Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead. They've been conspiring to execute him for some time now. They have no charge to bring against him. He hasn't done anything worthy of an execution. But that doesn't stop them. They are motivated by hate and by jealousy, and they'll stop at nothing to kill Jesus. But, you know, everybody has their morals, right? Everybody has their scruples. We draw the line here. We're not going to step into a defiled house. We're not going to step into this Gentile headquarters. We can't do that. By the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read more about what happened to Jesus when he was at Caiaphas' house. They pummeled him. They, they ridiculed him. They spat on him. They, they humiliated him. That's okay. I mean, that's good. But stepping into the headquarters of a Gentile, that we can't do that. Remember what Jesus said about the Jewish leaders in this day? He called them blind guides, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That's this. This is a perfect example of that right, right here. Now, let me just clarify a few things here. You might ask yourself, well, why would entering into a governor's headquarters defile a Jew? What Old Testament law are they trying to obey here? Here's the answer. Are you ready for it? There is no Old Testament law that would preclude this. They're, they're, you know, what they're trying to obey here is what's written in the, the a non-scriptural source called the Mishnah. It was a collection of Jewish oral tradition. And in the Mishnah, it prohibited this practice, going into a Gentile's house, and that would make you unclean for a certain number of days. And, and, and I mean, that's a non-scriptural source, so that makes the irony even stronger here. These Jewish leaders were vigilant in obeying non-scriptural commands while concurrently plotting to murder Jesus. Are you feeling it now, church? Are you now? I mean, John's working really hard so that you guys get this. The hypocrisy of what's going on here. They're trying to murder Jesus, and that's in the Ten Commandments, folks. That's, that's as scriptural as it comes. Thou shalt not murder. They're willing to do that, but ceremonial uncleanness we can't have that their sin is even more pronounced than that d.a carson writes this you can read this on the screen said the jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to to eat the passover and at the very time they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of him who alone is the true passover The Passover, what is the Passover in the Jewish world? This was a commemoration of the Exodus, right? They took the lamb, they killed the lamb, and what does the book of Hebrews say? The, the blood of lambs and bulls can't take away your sin. It's not those animals that take away the sins. Those, that Passover lamb was to point forward to the Messiah, to Christ. And right now, they're, they're killing the Passover lamb while trying to be ritually clean for the Passover. You might say, those dirty, rotten sinners, how could they be so blind? How could the Jews do that? Watch yourself now, you Gentiles. We covered this last week, didn't we? There's nothing but dirty, rotten sinners in this room who need Jesus. That's why he had to die for us. We all need the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And by the way, just... 
before you get too prideful about us as Americans, keep in mind that we were a nation founded on Christian principles that are right now enacting laws to restrict the religious freedom of Christians. That's ironic, folks. We're all dirty, rotten sinners who need Jesus. And I think that's one of the things that John's highlighting here. There's Jesus and then there's everybody else. There's Jesus and then there's Peter and there's Pilate and there's Barabbas and we are them. We're not Jesus, okay? Let's keep going here. There's more. Look at verse 29 with me. So Pilate, here's this guy. He's the governor. He's the leader in Israel appointed by the Romans. He went outside to them. They won't go inside. So Pilate goes outside to them. And this was customary at this time to bring an accusation or whatever. You, you go to the judge. Pilate's the judge. Pilate goes outside to them and he says this. What accusation do you bring against this man? Now watch this accusation. Verse 30. They answered him. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Does that sound a little evasive there? Like, well, this is kind of like chasing your tail. What, what are we talking about here? It, it does sound evasive. They don't have an accusation, not a good one to bring against Jesus. And so they're just wanting Pilate to rubber stamp what they're doing. Just kill him, will you? All right. Don't ask us questions. So I think Pilate knows this. They're being evasive and he wants to maybe even humiliate them. Look at verse 31. Pilate said to them, well, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. Why are you wasting my time? Why do I have to come out for this? What do I have to do with your Jewish laws? Deal with it yourself. So here's what the Jews say back to them, back to Pilate. They admit it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let me stop there. Here's number two. You can write this in your notes. Here's a second cruel irony in the text. Jewish leaders teamed up with the Romans in order to kill Jesus. Jewish leaders, including Caiaphas here, teamed up with the Romans in order to kill Jesus. Here's why this is ironic. Let me, let me just explain the situation in Jesus' day. The Jews despised the Romans. They saw them as intruders. They saw them as infidels. They saw them as a menace. And that led to not a few revolts in the days of Jesus, before that and after that both. And, you know, these revolts did not end well for Jewish people. Typically, the, the Romans would come in. They would publicly execute people. They would squash rebellion. And the reality is, yeah, okay, legally we've got a situation here where the, the Jews hate the Romans and yet they need the Romans because at a certain point in time, the Romans took away their ability to execute, probably around uh, 30 AD and, and before that, they took away this provision for them to execute. So they got to work together. They got to play nice with the Romans. They got to even play hardball here in order to get Jesus executed. Now, some of you might say, well, oh, yeah, well, I mean, they did execute people, didn't they? I mean, what about Stephen and the book of Acts? Yeah, that wasn't really an execution legally. That was just a mob that started throwing stones at Stephen. That was not legal. And yeah, they, I guess they could do that for Jesus. They'd even try it on occasion to kill him. But, but they want more than a stoning here. They want more than just kind of a, a private, let's get rid of this guy. They want Jesus to be humiliated. And in fact, they don't want him just dead. 
They want him crucified. Why do they want him crucified? Well, because the book of Deuteronomy says, their scriptures, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. They wanted Jesus to suffer and be humiliated. They wanted him to be accursed. And notice John's editorial comment in verse 32. Everybody look at this again. This is what John says. He says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What does that mean, Pastor Tony? What kind of death he was going to die? Well, Jesus said in John 3, you can read this on the screen, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Stoning involves casting down. We're putting you down. We're going to put you to death by stoning. And that was actually the way in which it was regulated in the Old Testament for somebody who blasphemed, if that's their accusation against Jesus, that they were to be stoned. But they don't want Jesus just stoned. They want him, they want him cursed. They want him lifted up. Jesus told his disciples, too, in Matthew 20, verse 19, that he would be handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified. Jesus wouldn't be cast down by stoning. Instead, he would be lifted up on a cross. As Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So this is really important for our understanding. We, we need to understand that the execution of Jesus, first of all, it wasn't a Jewish thing or a Gentile thing. They worked together in order to make this happen. And they did the thing, the exact thing that Jesus said they would do. They lifted him up on a cross. He hung on a cross. He became a curse so that the curse of sin might be removed from us. So that salvation might be provided to us, Jew and Gentile both. The apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles. Are y'all feeling this like I'm feeling this? This is good, church. I know this is tragic. You might say, this is tragic what's going on here with Jesus. It is, but it's God's plan, and it's a good plan. Jesus had to be lifted up. Jesus prophesied that he would be lifted up. Jesus had to be put on a tree to be a curse for sin, to be a curse so that we could be free from the curse of sin and death. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's what's happening here. Let's keep going here. There's more irony at work. What happens next with Jesus and this guy, Pilate? So Jesus goes to Pilate. Okay. Look at verse 33. Pilate entered his headquarters again. The Jews are outside. He goes inside. Jews won't follow him. But he calls Jesus, and he starts to question Jesus. And here's the first question. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate goes back into his praetorium, as it was called. He leaves the Jews outside. First question, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, let's talk about this guy, Pilate, because he's, he's an interesting character in history. You know, Pilate, at this time, as ruler in Israel, he, he's somewhere between merciless despot and incompetent ruler, okay? And, and sometimes he's both at the same time. He could be merciless. He could be vicious. There's uh, a statement about him in Luke 13 that he mixed the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices. That's how cruel and ruthless he was. And he also had a reputation in the Roman Empire for being a tyrant. But he could be, so he was a tyrant, but he could also be indecisive. He could also be inept as a ruler. And we see some of that indecisiveness with Jesus in this passage. 
Typically, too, Pilate, he wouldn't rule from Jerusalem. He would rule from Caesarea, which was on the coast, some miles from Jerusalem. But he had to come to Jerusalem at Passover in order to keep the Jews in line because there was always the risk of a riot. There was always the risk of a revolt at Passover. So Pilate had to be there to keep order and to negotiate with the the Jews and whatever else, keep them from starting a revolt. And Pilate, just so you know, was originally from Spain. He wasn't Jewish at all. He wasn't even from Rome. He was from Spain, from the far corner of the, the Roman Empire at that time. And so, you know, Pilate going to Jerusalem, Pilate going to Judea would be like you being sent by the State Department to Iraq, okay? Or you being sent by the State Department to Afghanistan, some outpost where you didn't want to be. That, I mean, Pilate, he, he was from Spain. He didn't like the Jews. He didn't want to be in Judea. He had these great aspirations to be, you know, a great leader in the Roman Empire. He didn't want to be here corralling a bunch of ungovernable Jews in Judea. And by the way, Pilate had already made some mistakes as a ruler. And I I think this is part of the reason he's willing to bargain with the Jews. I'll give you a quick example of that. When Pilate came to Jerusalem for the first time, he was trying to show some force and some courage as a leader. And so when he came into Jerusalem for the first time, he, he came in with this entourage and the soldiers brought in these poles. And at the top of these poles, there were each of them had a bust of Caesar at the top. And of course, in the Roman world, Caesar was a God. And why wouldn't you bring in, you know, your God as you're coming to these people that you've humiliated and you're trying to keep them, you know, subjugated. Uh, Well, of course, the Jews had a problem with this because they saw this as a graven image. They didn't want this brought into uh, Jerusalem. That was a violation of the Ten Commandments. And all the previous Roman governors, as they came in, they, they would take away this offensiveness in order to appease the Jews. But Pilate refused to do that. He wanted to strong arm the Jews as he came in there for the first time. So despite their protest, he wouldn't take the idols off those banners. He went back to Caesarea thinking he had really bullied them, but, but they followed him to Caesarea, this group of Jews, and they hounded him and they hounded him. Stop coming into Jerusalem with idols. Stop coming into Jerusalem with idols. And he got so sick of them. Eventually he said, meet me in the amphitheater. So all the Jews showed up in this amphitheater in Caesarea and Pilate said, he gave them an ultimatum, an ultimatum right there. Stop this request. Stop hassling me and go away or you're all, you all will be killed right here. You know what the Jews did? Talk about courage. They bared their necks before Pilate and all of his Roman soldiers. And they said, cut our heads off. This is that important to us. It's that meaningful to us that you keep the idols out of our city. You know what Pilate did? He backed down. He acquiesced to what they wanted. It's a marvel, really, that this guy, I mean, even he couldn't execute all these innocent people that were just trying to be hold to their scruples. And so he removed his idols. And all throughout Pilate's rule, in Israel, there was this back and forth. Sometimes he would get the best of the Jews. Sometimes the Jews would get the best of them. And they hated each other. They hated each other. And Pilate, by the way, was under strict orders from the Roman higher-ups to keep the Jews in line. They're always starting revolts. Keep them in line. Keep them from revolting. So sometimes he would fight them. Sometimes he would intimidate them. Sometimes he would appease them in order to keep the peace and keep his job, too. 
And we see a little bit of that here with Jesus. So, got that historical background locked away, do you? Do you now? All right, let's go back to the passage here. So Pilate calls Jesus to his headquarters and he says this, are you the king of the Jews? And I can't help but think there's, this, there's, a, there's a tone of mockery to it. You, really? The king of the Jews, really? Because Jesus is bound here. And, you know, we know that he was pummeled and beaten and slapped. So his, his face is probably swollen with, with cuts even from the beatings that he's taken already. And, you know, Pilate, are you the king of the Jews, really? This guy, really, are you? You're a disgrace. Here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered, I never know what Jesus is going to say. Can I just say that? It's always a surprise. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Let me translate what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, do you really want to know the answer? Are you asking that sincerely? Because you want to know the answer to this? Or, or, or are you just a tool of the Jewish leaders who are against me here? Here's what Pilate says. He's not backing down. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? You can, you can feel the anti-Semitism in his, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. I'm trying to do you a favor, pal. Now, what have you done? Fess up. You must have done something you, you, to deserve this, to make them hate you so much. Now, watch Jesus answers here. This is a good reminder for us. It's almost Good Friday. It's almost Easter. This is a good reminder for us at this time of year who Jesus is, even in the midst of this suffering and this persecution. If you watch Passion of the Christ again at this time of year or another movie that represents Jesus, don't ever forget this. Don't ever forget verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. I could call down 12 legions of angels right now and obliterate all of you. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Everybody look up here for a moment. Jesus is not the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of kings. Y'all with me? A pilot doesn't understand that. He can't see that. Jesus is not a political ruler. He's not coming to establish some political authority. That's the only authority that Pilate knows. That's the only thing these Jewish leaders know. It's politics, politics, politics. I'm not here for the politics, says Jesus. I'm the king of the universe. And I wouldn't be here unless it was part of a bigger purpose than you can even understand at this moment. Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. Here's the irony in this whole scene. Jesus, the king of kings, Jesus, the king of kings, was interrogated by an incompetent ruler. You kind of wonder, like, who, who's doing the interrogating here? Like, who, <laughs> who's really in charge here? That's not Pilate. So let me, let me just paint the picture for you again. So here's Pilate. Here's this, this stooge, this tool, the person who's immortalized in Christian history and the Apostles' Creed as the one who caused Jesus to suffer. I mean, how'd you like to be that guy? 
You know, every, every, we recited the Apostles' Creed today, right? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Judas isn't even mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. But for 2,000 years, we've been talking about Pontius Pilate, this guy who persecuted our Savior. It's Pontius Pilate, that's him. That's this guy. And this incompetent ruler is completely unaware that he is interrogating or trying to interrogate the ruler of the universe. And he thinks he has the power. He thinks he's in control. He may even think he's doing Jesus a favor. He's doing something noble, trying to protect him from being executed. But he has no idea who he's dealing with or who Jesus really is. Jesus tried to tell him, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate says this in verse 37. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king? (sighs) Heard Alistair Begg, I listened to a message from him on this passage, and he said, the only good thing that Pilate ever does in the scriptures is listen to his wife. That's the only admirable thing he does. That's the only thing that you can imitate of him, men in this room. Everything else is, is clueless. Pilate's clueless here. Maybe he's trying to coerce a confession out of Jesus. So you are a king, huh? Trying to compete with Caesar, are you? Come on now. And by the way, just a little historical footnote here. Calling yourself a king, that was a big no-no in this day. You didn't do that. Herod the Great was called a king. He was the ruler over Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. If you remember, he tried to kill Jesus. He was paranoid about this, this messianic ruler, this Jewish king, because Herod wasn't Jewish. He was an Edomite. And so that's why he sent out all these people to try to kill this supposed king from a Davidic line. Well, Herod, King Herod had three sons that reigned after his death, Herod Antipas, Phyllis, and Archelaus. And Herod Antipas, who's the one who executed John the Baptist, he ruled over Galilee, and he tried to take the title of king from his father. King Herod, that was my dad, so I want to be King Herod Antipas. Well, the Romans didn't want to give that title to king of king to anybody else. And so they actually removed him from power and banished him for the rest of his life, exiled him because he wanted to be a king. This is a big deal. Call yourself a king, you could end up dead. Maybe that's why Pilate's asking him, so you are a king? I don't think that's an honest question. I I think this is entrapment here. You are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus says, I'm not just a king, I'm a witness for the truth. I'm not just a king, I'm the dividing line between truth and error. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Listen, there's even in Jesus' words here, implicit within them is is an invitation. Pilate. Isn't it funny that Jesus is standing before the most powerful man in Israel and he's evangelizing him. I'm the truth. I bear witness to the truth. I'm the dividing line between truth and error. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Listen to me, Pilate. Hear me. Receive what I'm saying to you. 
Do you remember what Jesus said earlier in the Gospels? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you have that memorized, Harvesticator? John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the truth. I was born into this world to witness to the, Jesus spoke the truth. Jesus preaches truth. Jesus is the truth. It's right here for him. If he has ears to hear it. And Jesus says, everyone who listens, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Where are you at with this, church? Are you listening to the truth? Are your ears attentive to what Jesus says, to who Jesus is? Are you dead in your sins? Are you alive to the truth? Are you dead or alive? That's the question. Dead in sin or alive to the truth in Christ Jesus your Lord? I love the truth. I love talking about the truth. I love preaching the truth. I love talking about this stuff because when you know the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is, there is nothing more liberating in this world than that. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Are you free from your sins because of your faith in Jesus Christ? The way, the truth, the life. I was listening to a college president this last week, college president of a Christian university, and he was talking about how he gets interrogated sometimes, and he gets people who come up to him and ask him, are your faculty free to search for the truth? As if, you know, there's some conspiracy, you know, some gag order on the faculty. Don't speak about the truth, you know, don't let it out. Are, are you free to speak about the truth? And this, this president, this president of a Christian university, I love this response. He said, look, with all due respect, we're not looking for the truth because we've already found it. We've already found it. And all we want to do here in our university is understand this truth, apply this truth, love it, and proclaim it. I love that. Now to that, here's what the world says. Here's their spokesman, Pontius Pilate. The stooge in this story the cynic. Look what Pilate says in verse 38. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? Come on, man. Come on, Pilate. Jesus, he just told you. Can you hear it? Are you listening? Do you have ears to hear? What is truth? Pilate's the original relativist. He's the first Postmodern philosopher. What is truth? Y'all remember that Johnny Cash song, What is Truth? And the lonely voice of youth cries, What is truth? Y'all remember that song? I don't either. It's not very good. It's not one of his best anyway. <laughs> That's Pilate right here. He's Johnny Cash. What is truth? Go ahead and write this down as number four. Here's, here's some more irony. John's laying it on really thick here. I hope you get this. Jesus, the source of truth, was tried by a truth denier. Jesus, the source of truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, the source of truth, was tried before a truth denier. Now, some of you might, well, how, how do we know that Pilate's not asking this sincerely? Maybe, maybe he really wants to know. Hmm, what is the truth, Jesus? Can you tell me? You seem like a wise guy. Well, of course he's not asking that because... Look at verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. He's not waiting for an answer. 
He's not looking for an answer. He's just cynically, what is truth? And then he goes outside and he said, I, don't, I find no guilt in this person. He might be crazy. He thinks he's the king of the universe or something, but he's no threat to Rome. And he tries to establish his, his innocence before the Jews who want to execute him. And then Pilate makes a calculated error, which just makes me think that he's not, he's not very shrewd because he does this. And this is, this is a horrible idea. Verse 39, he says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Where are you going with this, Pilate? So let's make a deal. Do you want me to release to you the, the king of the Jews, this guy who thinks he's the king of the Jews? And at this time, we know from the other gospels that it wasn't just the Jewish leaders. There was a whole mob of people out there trying to figure out what was going to happen with Jesus, a bloodthirsty mob even. And the religious leaders started to stir up the crowd. And instead of releasing Jesus, they cried out again, verse 40, not this man, not Jesus, but some other guy, Barabbas. And John lets you know that Barabbas was a robber. Go ahead and write this down as number five. One last cruel irony in this passage, probably the cruelest irony of them all. Jesus, the innocent sufferer, was rejected in favor of a criminal. Jesus, the innocent sufferer, was rejected in favor of a criminal. The word robber is the Greek latase, and it, it was typically used for a revolutionary or an insurrectionist. Mark even tells us in his gospel that Barabbas, this guy, had murdered in order to you know, start a revolt, to, to start a revolution. And so, and, and that's truly what Pilate feared. I mean, this guy Barabbas is a real threat. This is the type of person that he's supposed to put down. Not Jesus, who's not really a threat at all, not to the Roman empire. Actually, he is a threat to them. <laughs> Pilate just doesn't know what kind of threat he is. Jesus and Christianity outlasted the Roman empire by about 1700 years and counting, by the way. But I mean, this is the guy really that Pilate should have feared but Pilate gets bullied into releasing a revolutionary in order to appease the Jews. He, Pilate gets bullied into releasing a criminal and condemning an innocent man. That's what happens here. And here's another exegetical nugget for you. The word Barabbas, I know most of you are probably familiar with that word Barabbas, this character, this criminal that gets freed. That's actually a nickname like Barnabas, son of encouragement. Barabbas uh, means son of a father. And we know from historical records, if they're accurate, that this man's real name is Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua was a common name in the first century. Every, every Jewish parent wanted to name their kid Joshua after the great hero of the Old Testament, right? So that was a really common name. Barabbas means son of a father. Bar is the Aramaic word for son Abbas is derived from Abba, father. So we have son of a father here. Here's why I point this out. And John makes a big deal of his name here, Barabbas. Here's the point. The crowds and the Jewish leaders wanted to free Barabbas, Jesus, the son of a father. And they want to put to death Jesus, the son of God, the father. Barabbas, the son of a father, the criminal goes free. Jesus, the son of God, the father, gets rejected, gets condemned, gets crucified. 
And that's all part of God's plan for redemption, to save you and to save me. That's what Jesus did for you. Jesus is not a victim here. I know this is wrong, but he willingly gave himself up to death so that he could pay the penalty for our sins. That's what Jesus did for you, church. Jesus, the son of God, the father, became the man of sorrows who bore our shame. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What happens next? Pastor Tony, what happens next? What does this guy Pilate do? What happens with Barabbas? Come back next week and I'll tell you. John 19. Let me close with this. Worship team, you can go ahead and come forward and prepare for a final song. I'm going to make one final observation about this man named Barabbas. You can read this on the screen as I read it for you. This comment comes from the commentator Donald Gray Barnhouse. And here's what Barnhouse writes. He says, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place. For it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God, that it should be poured out on me. I deserve the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. He was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. That is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in these three phrases. I deserved hell. Jesus took my hell. And there is nothing left for me but his heaven. Is that true of you this morning? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ, repented of your sin and trusted him as your savior? It's the only way to heaven. It's the only escape of hell. If you haven't done that before, let today be a day of salvation for you. I'm going to pray. Let's stand together as I pray and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we ask you right now by the power of your Holy Spirit to move in hearts. To remind those right now who know you and who are saved by your blood 
that they are children of God, not by anything that they've done, but because of what you've done for them. Remind them and encourage them in that, Lord. We are saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who who is not repented of their sin and embraced by faith Jesus, his death upon the cross, his resurrection from the dead, God, do that work right now in hearts this morning. We testify as a church that you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are our savior and you are our salvation, Jesus. Thank you for that. We worship you now.